0: and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away.
1: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama
2: Hello, I'm Marco Palmieri, back again with Diana Faux, and we want to welcome you to the quinquagenary episode of our show, The Big Five-O.
3: Quinquagenary! Wow, that is is a vocab word right there, and that is a milestone.
2: It's cool because I feel like the show is finally catching up to me.
3: Well, the show number is also about seven years old in dog years, which is practically immortal in internet years. Uh, I don't know how you want to do the math
2: here. I I actually don't want to do the math. I I feel like, you know, that's that's about as far as I want to take it. Um, But I'm young at heart, and that's what's important. You know what else is old, though? A lot of the movies I like. The grainy flicks of the 70s, the oversaturated color films of the 60s, the hokey horror and science fiction from the 50s. But I especially love the gloriously gritty black and white movies of the 40s.
3: I could say there's a classic quality to 40s films, but there's also the restrictions of the Hays Code, so I personally don't see old films with rose-colored
2: glasses. Fair point, fair point. But... All the more reason to be impressed with some of the films that came out of that era. Casablanca, Citizen Kane, It's a Wonderful Life. It's also been said that this is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. But what if that memory haunts you?
3: Indeed, this episode exposes the darker side of Tinseltown, I would say, where murder, memories, and celluloid collide. In our next story, an entitled Hollywood executive and ambitious young starlet make a film of a lifetime. But what they release has darker outcomes than they anticipate.
2: So grab your popcorn and get comfortable as we present part one of Excerpts from a Film, 1942 to 1987, by A.C. Wise, narrated by Julian Nippon.
4: Silver Screen Dream Productions, August 1987. Alone in his office, George Harwood watches the dailies. She's there in the background. After so long, he almost dismisses it as a trick of his imagination. Or maybe the Lefroy at his elbow, ice warming and cracking in the glass. But no, she's there. His Mary. George still does things the old-fashioned way, running 16-millimeter film through his Bell and Howell projector. He leaves space on his office wall blank, the furniture cleared to give a clean line of sight. Mary Evelyn Marshall. Sometimes Mary, sometimes Evelyn or Eve. Eva. Lillian. A myriad of names to slip into like a different dress every day. He comes around his desk, moving closer to the images on his wall. Black and white, a recreation of another time. All high silver and sharp-edged night. The women smile with lips like coal. The men watch them through eyes like high beams beneath their hats. A bar scene. Couples dancing in the foreground. Men and women sipping cocktails in the middle ground.
5: In the background, Mary, Evelyn, Eva, stands almost out of the frame.
4: She isn't watching the band or the couples, she's watching him. She's been dead for over 40 years. A shallow grave is the best he can hope for. Because the other options are her body crammed into a storm drain, rolled into a tarp alongside the highway. Scattered in pieces across defunct rail ties. In the dark, in an alley, in a rain-slicked dead end. Or she isn't dead at all. The truth is, he doesn't know what happened to her. But she's here now, blooming like a stain across his latest film. He stops the projector, pulls free a ribbon of celluloid, and holds it to the light. Not just one frame, all of them. Always in the background, smudged hollow gaze fixed on him. There are other dead girls too, fitting themselves into the spaces between actors. As George fits the film back into the projector and runs it again, the ghosts are so obvious, he can't believe he missed them. Spreading outward from the point that is Mary Evelyn Marshall. Like mushrooms, fruiting after a hard rain. Their skin soft, born on the edge of rot, and so easy to bruise. Once he's seen them, he can't unsee them. Until the rest of the film blurs, and they're all he can see. George reaches for his drink, he fumbles, knocking the glass to the ground. Leaving the amber liquid to soak into the carpet, he pulls canisters of film from the safe in the corner of his office instead. 1973, The Lady in Green. 1967, Blue Violet Girls. 1959, Bloody Rose. 1946, The White Canary Sings a whole rainbow of his sins. He runs them through the projector, one by one, even though he already knows.
5: She's there, in all of them.
4: Shaking so he can barely thread the film, he opens the last canister, the first canister from the bottom of the safe. 1942. Mary Evelyn Marshall is there again, but not dead this time not yet. She's on the beach, a screen test from a lifetime ago. Wind tugs her curls
5: and she lifts a hand to push them away. There's no sound, but he hears the question anyway. What do you want me to say? He answers from behind
4: the handheld camera and from decades away in his movie studio office,
5: here. And now, you don't have to say anything. You're perfect. You're going to be a star.
4: She doesn't answer, but her eyes and her smile say,
5: I know. Waves crash silently, and she turns to look at the ocean. She'd claimed to be
4: 18. He hadn't believed her another runaway with dreams of being a big star, a dime a dozen. She'd come miles and miles. He could smell it on her skin, the road, the desert, pine trees, crossing the whole country chasing her dream, or running away from whatever was chasing her. He hadn't lied about making her a star. She had it, like hunger. The opposite somehow. The kind of thing men and even some women wanted without being able to name. The kind of thing audiences would tear through meat and bone to get their hands on. George watches the film, spools it back, and watches it again. There's another film that isn't in the safe. One that arrived nearly 40 years ago wrapped in brown paper, delivered to his office with no return address. Amateur, full of skips and jumps, cutting off before the end, the last frames ragged and burned. He finished the job, putting the rest to fire, as if destroying the evidence could undo the crime. As if reducing it to ashes could bring Mary Evelyn back from the dead. It occurs to George, far too late, that the only kind of magic he ever needed was this. Watching his films backward to arrive here, on the beach in 1942. This is his Mary. Better than resurrected, not yet dead, bright, and terribly alive. She flashes her teeth as she flickers on the blank space of his wall like she wants to devour the world. George smells the
5: ocean, licks the tang of salt spray from his lips. I'm sorry, he whispers. He puts his face in his hands. It isn't enough. After 40
4: years, he finally understands. She isn't here for him. This haunting isn't about forgiveness or offering redemption from the cheap thrills he put on screen. She isn't even punishing him. All she ever needed from him
5: was to see,
4: and stop trying to reshape her story and make it his own. The weight of it crashes down on him. George's chest tightens. Pins and needles tingle up and down his left arm. He's cold. It takes him a while to notice. That's always been the way. He never sees what's in front of his eyes until it smacks him in the face. Too late for apologies or goodbyes. His vision narrows, a pinpoint, a tunnel. He's not rushing toward the light. It's coming at him, a train. When it hits, the impact bruises across his entire body, and he goes down. His legs fold. He grasps wildly and gets only a handful of film canisters. They clatter to the floor, and he goes with them. Ribbons of film flutter and crackle, tangling in his fingers and around his legs. Thousands of frames of her, over and over again. Mary Evelyn Marshall. Lillian, Eve. His last thought as the screen fades to black is, finally,
5: finally, at last, thank God. Monument Valley, Utah, April 1942. The land here is like something out
4: of a dream, or a nightmare, depending on your perspective. The sky is huge. The rocks are impossible colors that would look like a mistake if someone tried to paint them that way. There are whole cities carved out of the land by the wind. From a distance, they look
5: like castles in a fairy tale, the kind where ogres live. I wish Mama had stayed to see this. She turned
4: back in Nebraska. I knew she would, just like she must have known I would keep going. Nothing in the world could make me go back home. Because here's the first thing I remember, in my life, I mean. I couldn't have been more than two years old, standing up in my crib, looking out into the hall. A lamp had fallen over, and the light was shining on Mama and Daddy, casting their shadows on the wall like a picture show. Daddy had his hands around Mama's neck, choking her. She was smaller than him, weaker in every sense of the word.
5: He got her down on her knees before he finally let go and left her there, crumpled on the floor. At the time,
4: I was too frightened to cry. If I made a noise, any noise at all, he would strangle me too. That moment right there was when I knew. Even if I didn't understand it fully at the time, The knowledge was burned right onto my soul. That's what happens to girls. If you don't fight back, if you don't run away, someone bigger and stronger will chew you up and just walk away. They'll leave you crumpled on the ground like so much trash, and the world will never know you existed at all. So no, I'm not going home. I thought maybe when we saw the dead girl, Mama would change her mind. That was proof right there of the same thing I'd seen standing up in my crib, watching shadows projected on the wall. But of course, she already knew. And despite that knowledge, she'd made up her mind long ago. The summer I was 12, I broke my arm trying out the brand new pair of roller skates my neighbor Wilma Jean got for her birthday. Mama sat with me in the doctor's office and held my hand while I cried. When I
5: was done, she leaned over and wiped my tears. There are worse things than pain, she told me. Like what? I asked her. Because
4: right then, all I could think about was how much my arm hurt. I'd heard Daddy screaming at her the night before. No matter how I tried to block it out, It kept on coming right through the walls. He said if she was so unhappy, she should just leave. I heard him throw her suitcase on the floor. He must have started throwing her perfume bottles next because I heard glass breaking and the scent of them all mixed together. Rosewater and violets and lily of the valley coming through the wall, strong enough to make me gag. But even after that, in the doctor's office. Mama looked me in the
5: eyes and whispered like she was telling me the greatest secret in the world. She said, like being alone.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify.
2: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's king of the egg cream. So,
1: if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
4: We first saw the dead girl in a little roadside diner just outside of Ogallala. We'd been driving all night. Well, Mama drove, and I helped keep her awake by finding songs on the radio so we could sing along. To her, We were still on vacation, on a lark of a trip to visit Cousin Joyce in Hollywood. That's what she'd told Daddy, at least. Neither of us ever said the words, running away, out loud. I ordered a big breakfast, eggs, bacon, sausages, and toast. All that grease was delicious, and I just wolfed it down. But Mama only picked at her food. She'd ordered scrambled eggs, pushing them around her plate. Her shoulders were hunched the whole time, like she was waiting for something heavy to fall. That's when a man at the counter started talking about the dead girl. He was loud, like he wanted everyone in the diner to hear, not just the waitress refilling his coffee. He'd known the dead girl, you see, Nancy. A real looker, but sweet, innocent, the girl next door that everyone knew. Her family owned a gas station, and sometimes she would help her daddy at the pumps. The man at the counter sounded so proud, like he was special by association now that Nancy was famous, now that she was dead. He waved around a newspaper with her picture. The killer hadn't been caught, and other dead girls had been found in other towns, like the killer was working his way from coast to coast just like me and Mama on our road trip. Look at the pattern, he said. A big jagged line like a bloody smile, right across the face of America. Some kids found Nancy dumped by the side of the road. Another girl had been found in a storm drain, and one inside an empty rail car. Nancy's body had been rolled into a tarp with a few rocks and dirt thrown over top. But whoever killed her didn't bury her, he wanted her to be found. When I looked up, Mama was staring over my shoulder. I twisted around to see what she was looking at, and there was Nancy, the dead girl, in the booth behind ours. I don't think anyone saw her except Mama and me. And Mama looked down so fast, I knew she'd never admit it out loud. The thing about dead girls is once you see them, you can't unsee them. And you realize they're everywhere. If mama admitted to this one, she'd have to admit what might happen to me,
5: what might happen to her, and she couldn't bring herself to do that. So she looked away, and I kept looking at Nancy.
4: There were none of the cuts and bruises the man at the counter had talked about, but I could tell she was dead. She looked me right in the eye, and I knew what had been done to her. I touched Mama's
5: hand so she'd have to look at me, but she pulled away like she'd been burned. I can't do this, she said. There were tears in her eyes. No matter how many times Daddy hit her, She didn't know how to be without him. I'm sorry, she said. She dropped money on the table. Then she was out the door. A plume of dust kicked
4: up behind her wheels, and she was gone. I should have been scared or sad, but I was only relieved. All I could think as I watched her drive away was, finally. I know how it all sounds. How many girls run away with the same silly dream of going to Hollywood and becoming a star. But I'm not stupid. I have a plan. My cousin Joyce, the one Mama and I were going to stay with, she's had a few small parts in films. Not speaking parts, but she's up on the big screen. She can introduce me to people, take me to the right parties. And there are things a girl can do to get noticed at those parties. You see, like I said, I'm
5: not stupid.
4: It isn't about being famous, not really. The way I see it, the camera sees people in a way we don't see each other. The camera doesn't lie. Sure, there are movie tricks, but those are all man
5: made. The camera sees what it sees and it remembers. So that's me. That's my plan, my dream. I'm going to live forever, up on the big screen. Grauman's Chinese Theater, September 1946.
4: Cameras flash, pinning their shadows to the red carpet like the splayed out wings of a butterfly. This is it, Mary's screen debut, The White Canary Sings. George shouldn't be nervous, he's done this before. Mary, except she's Eva today, should be. But she's perfectly poised, lightly holding his arm so he feels like he's the one clinging so he won't fall. Her curls have been tamed into gentle waves, lips red, teeth white. Dress sleek and heels impossibly thin. Yet she never stumbles, despite the champagne in the car on the way over. Her eyes are bright and hard. She smiles in a way that seems to light up her whole face. Only he knows she's baring her teeth. He stumbles right at the door, but Mary keeps him upright. She should let him fall. This whole thing has been a mistake, nearly four years from beginning to end. From a year of stalling and putting Mary off while he found just the right project for her, to conceiving The White Canary Sings as her debut feature, to production problems, delays in shooting, to just now in the car on the way here. Three glasses of champagne for her, two of whiskey for him, his hand on her leg the silky sheen of her dress under his palm, her head turning, her hand firmly lifting his and putting it back in his lap. We're not doing that anymore, George, I told you. Barely 20 to his 35, but she sounded like his mother, scolding him as a naughty child. He'd flushed shame hot, but his hand moved to her arm, Gripping harder than he intended. Please, for old time's sake, on his lips. This is exactly what he'd expected. Why else put her off for so long? At the same time, he'd expected her to comply, fold as she had when they first met at the party on the beach, the taste of salt on her mouth, and then his. In his mind, he was already guiding her to his lap, Feeling the warm wetness of her wrapped around him, picturing her carefully reapplying
5: lipstick afterward, smoothing her hair. She pulled her arm from his hand. No. Once more, final and firm. The ghost of his fingers
4: remained, fading by the time the car pulled up in front of the theater. She hadn't even needed to dust on powder to cover the marks, like they'd never been there at all. He hated himself, and he hated her, the resilience of her skin resisting him, and the sickness roiling in his stomach with the aftertaste of whiskey. And now she's guiding him into the darkened theater, like a little boy who
5: can't find his own way. They take their seats in the front row, Mary, Eva, Lillian, Eve.
4: The taste of all her names coats his throat as he glances at her out of the corner of his eye. She's wrapped, sitting forward, waiting to breathe in the silver screen ghosts and hold them in her
5: lungs. He might as well not be here at all. Except, no. She needed him to see her first
4: to see that hungering thing inside her, and put her up on screen. He holds on to this, even though she's changed since those first moments in front of his camera. Did he change her, or did she do it on her own? Was she always dry tinder, and he only the spark that finally let her burn?
5: George wants to take her hand. He wants to apologize. It was supposed to be different. She was different. Not like
4: the other girls, but he treated her just like one of them anyway. He's always hungry, starving for more. Mary, Eva, Evelyn, melting on his tongue like cotton candy. All spun sugar, at least the parts he can reach. Her core, whatever it is, lies beyond him. The curtains rise, and Mary is there, larger than life, filling the screen. He cast her as a young ingenue, of course, a want-to-be star. She wears a dressing gown, waiting to go on stage, her curves tantalizingly visible through the sheer material. A little titillation for the audience, as though she's something they can have. And oh, did he deliver up the satisfaction. Even as the opening credits roll, George can feel the end of the film rushing toward him. Her discovery, her meteoric rise, her jealous lover, her obsessed fan. Her body, splayed in a cold alleyway, arranged as though death was a beautiful thing. Her throat opened like a bloody smile, beneath lips painted jet and ash. The curves of her still a buffet, her body an invitation for appetites of another kind. A cautionary tale and an object lesson. This is how we break our girls and make them tame. This is how we keep them fresh and young. This is what happens when you run away. It's all wrong. George bolts for the bathroom. He brings up whiskey and his breakfast from hours ago. He brings up guilt and bile and slides to the floor, resting his head against the wall. He killed her. He killed her because he couldn't have her. He killed her because he doesn't know what else to do with girls. His head pounds. Mary Evelyn Marshall is inside the darkened theater, watching herself up on screen and he can't shake the feeling something terrible is coming for her, for him. Like a train
5: barreling down a tunnel, and there's nothing he can do to stop it. Nothing at all. Hollywood Hills, May 1942. I'm
4: up above the city, smoking. All the glamorous women smoke in Hollywood. That's what Joyce told me so I figured I'd better get on board. I can see so many lights, and it's peaceful. I've never been this far from home. Back in Detroit, nothing ever changed. Here, the air tastes like rain and electricity and everything waiting to happen. There's a big party tomorrow at some producer's house on the beach. Joyce promised to take me. There's a swimming pool and there'll be lots of alcohol, and maybe even drugs. Joyce said I don't have to do anything I don't want to. She'll look out for me. She's lying, though not on purpose. The only person Joyce will be looking out for is herself.
5: I don't blame her. We all do what we have to do. Girls like me, and Joyce even, we're a dime a dozen. There's
4: so many of us, But there's only so much room we're allowed to take up in the world. So it's every girl for herself. I'm thinking of introducing myself as Lillian, just to see how it sounds. Anyway, the dead girls followed me here. Unlike living girls, ghosts don't take up any room. They can fit themselves in anywhere, spread themselves out, and multiply on and on. It's more than just Nancy. There are dozens of them now. It's like the man in the diner where I met Nancy said. There's a monster killing his way across the country. I guess I followed behind him and cleaned up the mess he made. This
5: whole damn country is haunted. Every single step of the way. Silver Screen Dream Productions January 1947,
4: George looks up from his desk as Mary Evelyn barges into his office. She's unsteady, she's been crying, and he can smell alcohol on her, something much cheaper and harder than champagne, as she slams a newspaper onto his desk. We did this, George. He recognizes the picture under the headline killer sought in brutal murder, Elizabeth Short. She's been all over every newspaper for days. Her mutilated body was found in Lemert Park just under a week ago. He looks up from the black and white portrait of the smiling girl with curls in her hair, the want-to-be star. It could be Mary Evelyn, but it isn't. Because she's leaning on his desk, her hands and fists shaking. We did this to her, Mary says. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The movie was supposed to help them, give them a face, a name, so people would finally see. What are you? He stands up. But before he can get the words out, her hand cracks across his skin, hard enough to leave the ghost of her fingers behind. Then she crumples, sinking to the carpet in front of his desk and putting her head in her hands. Her fingers muffle her words.
5: We put it up on screen, my body in the alleyway, so people would see. George almost corrects her,
4: telling her Elizabeth was found in a park, not an alleyway, and that some want to be starlet's death has nothing to do with her. The movie they made, The White Canary Sings, All they did was make a crime flick. Something to put behinds in seats and make a quick buck. But deep down, George knows it's a lie. He made a crime flick. Mary made something else. Despite his best efforts, on screen, she transformed. So Mary is right. This is their fault, even if he doesn't fully understand how. Movies are a special kind of magic, playing with make believe and blurring the line between real and unreal. Humanity is the other half of the equation. They have to be willing to believe, take the ghosts flickering up on screen into their very souls and allow themselves
5: to be changed. He looks at the newspaper again, the dead girl. He looks back at Mary. Evelyn, Eve, so many names, so many girls
4: all rolled into one, and the dead girl on the front page could be her. He pours a measure of whiskey from the bottle in his desk and holds it out to her, even though a drink is the last thing she needs. Mary downs it in two long swallows. He watches her throat work as the liquid goes down. She stands a fawn on unsure legs. Her eyes are pinpoints of light coming out of the shadows straight at him. She takes one unsteady step, bringing the raw sweat and alcohol scent right up to him.
5: Her fingers graze the buttons of his shirt. For old time's sake, her words slur.
4: Her mouth lands hot on his skin and she murmurs words he can't hear against his throat. His fingers move to help hers, even though he wishes they wouldn't. In his haste, in his regret, his shirt rips, buttons scattering. This isn't about him. It's about Mary, and he's caught up in her wake somehow.
5: He should say no. He should be stronger. But she's always been the strong one. She pushes him
4: hard against his desk. Pain jars from his tailbone up his spine. Script pages and a letter opener and a heavy glass paperweight scatter. Every part of her is furnace hot, burning like a fever. George lets himself sink into the dark and the heat, the slick sweat of her. Praying he'll fall all the way through to the other side where light will shine again.
5: Hollywood Hills, February, 1947. I saw her last night, Elizabeth
4: Short. She came and sat beside me, and we looked out at the city together. I offered her a cigarette, the one I was halfway through smoking. She put it to her lips, took a deep drag, and I watched the smoke go right through her and swirl beneath her skin.
5: Part of her was as blue as the sky above us. Part of her was silver, like a goddess up on the screen. Part of her looked just like me.
4: That was only if I looked at her head on, though. If I looked out of the corner of my eye, I could see what had been done to her the smile extending to the edges of her face, the cuts all along her body, the line bisecting her. I wonder if some mortician stitched her up before they buried her, tried to make her look pretty and presentable. Just like George cut up the white canary sings to make my death beautiful up on screen. Did someone do that to Nancy, too, and all the other dead girls? The world should have to see what happens to girls like Elizabeth and Nancy. They shouldn't be able to look away. All the dead girls without names stood behind Elizabeth. The girls who followed me across the country and stuck to my skin. Vague outlines
5: in starlight, the way ghosts are supposed to be. Only Elizabeth was sharp and clear. I figured it out pretty quick.
4: They made her that way, all those newspapers and cameras, her image everywhere, repeated again and again. They made her a star,
5: Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. I didn't tell her I was sorry. What would be the point?
4: Sorry never brought anybody back from the dead. I swear I thought I was helping, but of course it doesn't work that way dead girls up on the big screen are a thrill. My body filtered through the lens was a lie.
5: It's like I said,
4: the camera tells the truth, but the tricks, those are
5: all man-made. In the dark, it's easy to bend the truth into something safe. When the lights go on,
4: people can step back into the sun, knowing a girl didn't really die in an alley. Was all a show. I have to do more. I can't just be a face or a name. I have to be every face, every name. I have to be all of them in one. If I can put all those ghosts up on screen with me, people will have no choice but to see. Dead girls aren't lovely. The media tries to make them so, but they're only dead. Clogging storm drains and rotting on railway ties. I have an idea, though, or at least the beginnings of one. The way Elizabeth died, and the way she'll never die because her picture is on every newspaper page. There's something there. I was always going to live forever in camera shots, in flashbulb lights, up on the big screen. But now, it's going to mean something. I'm going to bring the other dead girls with me. We're going to show the world what we really
3: are. That was a very visceral, haunting ending to part one. And for a very dry sounding title, this story hits deep in so many places.
2: Absolutely. And one thing I absolutely love about A.C. Wise's work is how she writes for the senses. Her love of language is evident in every sentence. And it, I feel it touching every part of my brain.
3: Yeah. And the use of excerpts from different time periods really kept my thought process just jumping around. I loved seeing George's end right at the beginning. Uh, that way we become focused on the mystery that leads him down this path.
2: Oh, I love the nonlinear time jumps. They give the story an appropriately cinematic quality, even as they challenge the audience to keep up with the story.
3: Yeah, I agree. And i I just realized the time jumps—they're kind of like when you're cutting tape, totally. stitching it together. Oh, that is actually brilliant. I just thought about that right now. Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I mean, she's you know literally editing scenes together that that you know uh, lead the. Um, listener and the reader in a very specific way. Mm
3: -hmm. And AC Wise does a brilliant job examining these parallels about death and violence and exploitation in the film world, and combining that with our fascination of serial killers.
2: And she really knows how to create a terrifying atmosphere. There isn't a single moment of the story when I didn't feel anxious.
3: And the second half will only up ante.
2: That's probably as far as we should take this discussion before we move on to part two in our next episode. And I, for one, can't wait to get to it. Thanks for being part of the show, Diana.
3: Well, I'm unsettled but also invest in seeing how the story ends. And if you're also feeling equally entertained and uneasy, please give our show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts.
2: And if you suddenly start seeing ghosts in the movies you're watching, do yourself a favor, just listen to podcasts. Until next time, pleasant nightmares.
0: You are listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 50 Features Excerpts from a Film by A.C. Wise Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Diana M. Foe Performed by Julia Nippon It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman Audio produced by Tidef Studios Additional editing by Angela Yi. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Cutner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like stories to keep you up at night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.